John chapter 20, we're going to look at verse, verses 1 to 10. This takes place a couple of days after Jesus has been crucified. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They did still not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, please would you open our eyes. Please would you open our eyes so that we see and understand what the disciples saw and understood, but we also understand what they didn't yet understand but the things will become clear to us tonight. Amen. So, Easter eggs. Easter eggs. Easter eggs today means, obviously, the sort of the chocolatey ones you've had at home, whether it's cream eggs or pink ones or white ones or a substitute, healthy substitute or something like that. Easter eggs mean something special today. Um, over the last few years, and I think as computers have gained in power, Easter eggs have gained a second meaning. And Easter, Easter eggs now are the sort of the hidden secret surprises you can find in a game or a website. I mean, I, it used to be the case that a company like Google would do special designs for Easter Sunday, and if you rolled your mouse over a particular part of the design, something popped out for you. Um, there's a hidden element uh, in a computer game, which only the people who really know what's going on find out. Um, movies are now written with the Easter eggs in, and if you're a fan of the Marvel stuff, you will know that Marvel movies are riddled with Easter eggs for the people who know what they're going on. They, they, they bake them in to keep you watching and keep you paying attention. And uh, they sometimes put them in backwards. There's a famous accidental Easter egg in the Star Wars movies, where the stormtrooper, who the, the actor bumped his head on the set, as he went through a door, and it became famous. They, they'd missed this when they were making the film, and had somehow made it into the original. And they went back years later and added the clunk sound to make it that we have spotted that you, this actor did this, and we're going to make fun of it. Easter eggs. Now, if we take these verses that we've just read from John chapter 20, you might think you know the story. You know it quite well. But over the past couple of thousand years, people have discovered that John has, I want to, don't want to say hidden Easter eggs, but he's put things there for us to think about and mull over that mean that not just that it's worth playing the game two or three times or watching the movie two or three times, but for 2,000 years, people have found this a story to, worth thinking about. 
and which, one which is rich. There's some stuff to make us wonder, first of all. There's the, um, there's the fact that one of the disciples isn't named, though it's most likely to be John who wrote the gospel, I think, being a little bit bashful. He's a bit, he's a bit bashful about his name. He's not bashful about his personal best, is he? He's fairly clear that he's, he's faster than Peter at the running side of things. Um, there's a clear indication that the cloths are lying there that bound Jesus' corpse. They're just lying there unused. And most likely, I think, translated that one of them is folded up. Um, not that Jesus was tidy-minded necessarily, as saying, Jesus doesn't need these anymore. These were temporary things. He's just passing through. Sometimes people think that Jesus was some sort of ghost-like figure who passed through the grave clothes. But the New Testament is very clear that Jesus was not a ghost, very far from being a ghost. In a way, the grave clothes were less real than he was. He was the most real person there. There's other stuff as well. We're about to start a little series on Revelation here. One of the things we will spot in the book of Revelation, which was written by the same guy that wrote John's Gospel, is that he loves patterns, he loves styles, and he loves numbers. And numbers are really important to John. Um, the number seven always means something which is perfect. You'll spot, as we go through Revelation, a number of things happen seven times, or there are seven objects. True in the Gospel as well. If you read these verses very carefully, there's a word that comes seven times. It's the word tomb. The tomb. It's repeated more often than it needs to for the sake of the story. It's just there, John saying, you do know what the most important place in this story is. And ironically, the one thing it wasn't used for very long was a tomb. It hadn't been used before. It was used temporarily, and then it wasn't a tomb any longer. But he makes sure we get the spotlight. But I want us to focus on the bit that's in brackets towards the end. You see, the... These disciples, Peter and John and Mary Magdalene, saw and believed. They believed somehow that Jesus had risen from the dead. Maybe they were joining the dots from what Jesus had told them. But look what happens in brackets. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now, if you're reading this and you're reading this as somebody who's a follower of Jesus, you're thinking, well, no, I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and I read the, the Acts of the Apostles, and I read the letters. They're full of references to Jesus rising from the dead. But of course, at the time that John was writing, most of those hadn't been written yet. And by the scripture, he meant everything that happened before Jesus, what we call the Old Testament. And so John is saying that somehow... Hidden in there like a gigantic Easter egg is the message that Jesus would die and rise again. You think, I don't think I've seen that very clearly. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at some of the Easter eggs buried in the Old Testament. Um, if you don't know your way around the Old Testament, that's absolutely fine. I'm going to give you some page numbers. There may be some stories you're familiar with. The better you know your Old Testament, the easier you're going to find this in a way. Because you'll think, oh... I see, I understand. Let's start off with something really obvious. One of the most famous parts of the Old Testament that is read every Easter. 
It's a prophecy of Jesus as the servant suffering and dying. So you're going to need to keep your finger in John's Gospel. That's always a wise thing to do, isn't it? But turn back with me to the Old Testament, to the prophet Isaiah. Now you'll find Isaiah, he's one of the big hitters of the Old Testament. You'll find him in the 700s of your pages. And this particular one is on page 741. Now I'm going to read this to us, but... Be aware that it it normally stops halfway through because it's the kind of passage which we read on Good Friday when we think about Jesus' death. I'm just going to read a little bit further than we normally read and see what happens. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's really interesting because we're used to reading that as being about Jesus' suffering, which it is, written hundreds of years before Jesus. But buried in there as well is a promise that there'll be something for Jesus to do beyond his death that he will see life, the other side of death. And that's the kind of passage which, in terms of straight prophecy, Jesus would have pointed people to. And said, see, it is not just that I am come as your king, it is not just that I will suffer, it is that I will rise again. There are prophecies. Second group of things we can look at. Jesus, we know, was particularly familiar with the book of Psalms. 
He loved the Old Testament book of Psalms. And he found in there a mirror for who he was and what he was going to be doing. It's um, one, one of the, the things you realize as you read the Psalms over the years is that we read them about our relationship with God, which is entirely right and entirely precious. But actually, they're first of all about Jesus' relationship with his Father. And if you get that clear, then all sorts of other things come swimmingly into focus. Let's have a look at some of them. We're turning left from Isaiah, back a few pages, to the book of Psalms, which is round about in the middle of your Old Testament. And we're going to look at Psalm 16, first of all. This is a psalm of some sort of King David, uh, a king but also a great poet, songwriter in the Bible. And as king, he was kind of a, a snapshot of who Jesus would become. Uh, we'll see more about that in just a second. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I shall not be shaken. Therefore my, tongue, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see what happens at the end there? He says, I'm going to live forever. There'll be blessings coming from my hands. Forever, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. In case you think I'm making this up, this is one of the Old Testament Psalms that the book of Acts quotes. In the very first few, few days, months of, of the Christian church, they latched onto this Psalm and said, see, there's a prophecy here about someone who's going to die and rise from the dead. It can't be David writing about himself because we've still got his tomb in Jerusalem, they said. So it must be about somebody else and that somebody else is Jesus. They took that psalm and said, this is a wonderful picture. It's a bit like a Nike swoosh, isn't it? It goes down, but it comes up again. In fact, they said they spotted that time and time again. Turn on with me to Psalm 22, just a few pages. Now, this psalm's a little bit longer, but we're going to stick with it. Now, once again, this is a psalm that's really quoted on Good Friday. Uh, when we think about Jesus' death. And we quote it on Good Friday because it's a psalm that Jesus himself quoted on the cross. When he said his most agonized words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was inhabiting this psalm. But look what happens in Psalm 22, which goes from the bleakest of places. Psalm 22. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were put, not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry from help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Done what? What has God done in this psalm? He's taken his king, laid him in the dust of death and then raised him up to a position of eternal life and glory. It's the Nike swoosh again in this psalm. It happens again and again as you read the psalms. Once you spot this business about the king suffering, being surrounded by enemies, being laid in the dust of death and being raised to a position of glory and victory, it's absolutely everywhere. And it's the kind of stuff that Jesus was pointing to and saying, do you not see the Old Testament written hundreds of years ago has got this pattern built into it with these psalms writing about me. Take the very next psalm, Psalm 23. Probably the most famous of the psalms, very familiar. Again written by King David. 
thinking about his time as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I like nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, or look at the footnote, the valley of the shadow of death, perhaps how we're used to hearing it, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. For how long? Forever. Forever. And Jesus says, do you see the Nike swoosh? He doesn't say that, does he? He says, do you see the pattern? You see the pattern of the king who's surrounded by enemies and walks through the valley of the shadow of death and yet, and yet knows victory. Jesus says, these are the scriptures that talked about me. Or take some patterns. Think about some of the characters you know from Old Testament stories. Maybe ones, if you, if you went to, to church as a child and you were, you were taught some of the stories, just think about how they teach this pattern. You know about Joseph. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Joseph who is taken to a position of being in prison, helpless, facing death. And yet he's raised to a position of ultimate power to bless the nations. So that the promises that were given to Abraham, his ancestor, could be fulfilled through, the ne- through him to bless the world. You see the fingerprints of Jesus on the life of Joseph? King David himself, anointed by God to be the king, and yet he loses it, but partly by his own, largely by his own fault, but he loses his kingdom. He's isolated, he's surrounded by enemies, and yet God restores the monarchy to him, gives it back to him, so that he can reign. The prophet Jeremiah, Less well known, but not just with his teaching, but in his life story. He kind of inhabited this idea of being abandoned by God, but being raised back to life again. Like to one really dramatic part of his life story, all sorts of things happened to Jeremiah, but at one particular part of his life story, he was lowered into a pit, a huge pit sealed atop a cistern, a water tank, from which there was no escape. It's a kind of picture of death. And yet he's rescued. He's brought out of it. And as he reflects on that story again, it's a story of, Jesus, of God raising the dead, he says. It's got the fingerprints of Jesus all over it. Daniel, you know the story of Daniel. What big things do you know about Daniel? Daniel in the lion's den. Facing death, sealed up in a tomb. Have you got it? Sealed up in a tomb. And yet he survives, doesn't he? He comes back to life. His his friends, earlier in the story, his friends thrown into a fiery pit, an oven, so hot it killed those who were stoking the fire. They're sealed in. And yet, they come out again. All over the Old Testament, you've got these patterns. that they're, They're like sort of, in, in the dark, you get flashes of light off jewels. They're glinting. It's a little bit of light and you see a hint here and a hint there. And there's stuff all over that tells us of Jesus. 
Jonah. It's a story that Jesus himself tells. The story of Jonah. Not, not a brilliant person in some ways, a runaway prophet. God wanted Jonah to tell people about the, the opportunity for forgiveness, the need to repent and the opportunity of forgiveness. And, and Jonah said, no, I'm not going to do that, God, because I know you're going to be kind to them. And I don't want that. I want you to judge those people, not to be kind to them. So he, he headed off in the wrong direction, completely. Went off to, yeah, 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And uh, God sent a storm. The sailors, the pagan sailors, work out what the problem is. They chucked Jonah overseas, overboard so that he won't cause them any more trouble. God sends a mighty fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah goes down to the bottom of the sea. He's there for three days at the bottom of the sea until the great fish surfaces again and vomits him out. And Jesus said hundreds of years later, let that stand as a picture to you. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and came out again, so the Son of Man will die and rise again three days later. See, Jesus taught us that these patterns are there. So we've got prophecies, we've got psalms, we've got patterns. And then we've got prototypes built into the story, our sort of great big visual aids. We don't tend to use props and things in the evening. We use them more in the morning. We've had some some doors recently, haven't we? God, God gave them sort of 3D visual aids. One of the biggest was the temple. A massive building designed for God's worship. Because of the rebellion of God's people, they were taken into exile. The temple was abandoned and demolished. Stone by stone, carted off to Babylon. Precious stones, marble, things like that. Carted off to Babylon and reused. In a different way. Was that the end of the story? Oh no. 70 years later, God began a plan for rebuilding that temple and starting it again. At that time, there was a prophet called Ezekiel, and he introduced the idea of that temple being rebuilt as being raised from the dead, he said. And in fact, the temple itself, he said, is just a picture of what happens to the people. They're currently in Babylon, scattered like the bones of a corpse. But they will be raised back together again and given new life. The temple kind of symbolized what would happen to the people. And Jesus said, facing his accusers, if you destroy this temple, it will be raised in three days. Now, they thought he was referring to the new temple that had just been built. Centuries later, another one had been put up by King Herod. They thought he was referring to that, but Jesus was referring to himself. He was the temple. He's the ultimate temple. He says, you will demolish this temple, and just like the ones before it, it will be rebuilt. Three days later, he said. Three days later. So when... John puts in brackets in John chapter 20. Remember John chapter 20? When he put in brackets, in ver well, the English translators put the brackets in. He just notes verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. He means us to say, how slow were they? Did they really not see these prophecies, these psalms, these prototypes, these 
patterns? Did they really not see what was going on? And of course they didn't at the time. But as the decades unfolded, and we can see it in the pages of the New Testament, they read back in their Old Testaments, and they said, this was writing about Jesus all along. As you read the early church, book of Acts, and you hear how they talk about Jesus from the Old Testament, you can see that time and time again, they're saying that book talks about Jesus who died and rose again for us. But of course, it's not just a matter of understanding, is it? It's a matter in verse 8 of believing. I don't think John would be happy if we just left church tonight saying, oh, I understand, that's very interesting. I, can, I understand now the Old Testament had got some psalms and some prophecies and some patterns and some prototypes, and they all point to Jesus. How very interesting. No, the Easter egg is that they believed. That's what he wants for us. We don't just understand, but the penny drops and we understand. Jesus died for me. And God raised him from the dead. Not just to be our king and savior, but to be my king and savior. Let's be quiet together for a moment. Maybe in the silence there's some stuff that you want to say to the Lord Jesus who 2,000 years on is still alive. 2,000 years on because those Old Testament prophecies and Psalms were true. He's still alive. He's the risen King, the forever King. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you knew what would happen to you and yet you did it for us. You knowing that you had to die and be raised from the dead did it out of love, out of grace for us.